pray together and then we'll, we'll get started this morning. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word, but most especially I thank you for the gift of your word made flesh in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning that the words that I speak would be your words and not my own and that we would walk away this morning more aware of our intimacy and our union with Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. So this morning, uh, if you want to kind of mark your places in your Bible, we're going to be looking at the Matthew 28 passage. Um, my name is Jared Grice. For those of you who don't know, um, I'm the music director here at Resurrection, and it's a great gift to be able to preach this morning to you. This morning, we are talking about a very famous passage, and, and this is a, a unique Sunday because this is World Mission Sunday. And so, you know, as we talk about this passage, we think about the global impact of the gospel. I'm going to preach in a way that's a little surprising and unique, though, and really narrow in on what it means for us to be disciples. Whenever I was 16, 17 years old, I had a job, and uh, that job was working at um, an ice cream kind of shaved ice pastry shop in the town where I grew up. The owner named Scott was a family friend of ours, and he hired me. And in my first couple weeks of working there, the first thing you do is you learn how to make the, you know, the, the drinks and serve the things that you're serving to people. And so I was training. It felt like a lot of information. It felt like a lot of you know, things to try and get right. And there was one day that we were working. I was working with another student who was about a year older than me who had been working there for about a year. And so he got the privilege of running the register while I was trying to fumble through making all the drinks that people ordered. But I never really got nervous because Scott was always nearby, hanging in the back room or working on other things. And so if we got overwhelmed, we could call Scott to the front and he would help. Well, this particular day, it was, I think, a Tuesday or a Wednesday, so it wasn't a, a particularly busy day. Scott had to go to a nearby town to pick up some supplies that we were short on. And he said, okay, guys, I'm going to leave you by yourself, but if you need me, call me. You can take care of things on your own. And so we thought, okay, no big deal. Even if we get a little busy, we'll be able to handle it. Well, as the other uh, student coworker and I were, were sitting there, we looked through the windows that led out the, the cafe, and we saw across the street that a school bus full of students and teachers pulled up, in addition to other smaller buses behind them. Um, in the ensuing moments, we saw a large crowd of people pour out of these vehicles and come straight across the street into our shop. I can, even right now, feel my heart rate rising a little bit as I think about that moment, um, and we were like, we don't know what we're gonna do. This is gonna be awful. So they came in, and as you know, um, high school students are particularly socially inept. They, they don't know how to be kind. They don't really know how to be respectful. So if they didn't get their drinks in like five seconds, they were mad at us, and they didn't. Um, so we were, we were stressed. I was trying to figure out how to make all of these drinks and serve them fast enough. My friend was taking the money, the problem was we couldn't really switch places because I didn't know how to run the register yet. And so we're just, we're getting overwhelmed and it's getting worse and worse. The adults are starting to get mad at us. We don't really know what to do. And then other customers are coming in. It, it, was, it was awful. And so in that moment, my friend looks at me and he says, I have an idea. I said, okay, great. I like ideas, especially right now. And so he turns around and he goes to the back room 
And I'm thinking, I don't know what he's doing, but I'll just hang out. I'll keep trying to hold down the fort. And minutes go by and more minutes go by and more minutes go by and he still hadn't come back. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on? So I stop and at this point, people are really mad because now two of the only employees that are there are not working on what they've ordered. So I go to the back and I look for my friend and I see the back door is left open that led out to where we parked our cars in the alley and his car was gone. My friend dipped out, he left, he was gone. And so I'm looking around, I try to call Scott, Scott doesn't answer, I'm thinking, what am I gonna do? And, and so I think about calling the police, but I'm like, that's really not gonna do any good. Um, and so I look, and, I, and I'm not making this story up. I look to my left and I see this, this red square box on the wall that says fire alarm. I got those people out of there in about five seconds. I pulled the fire alarm and everyone, the, the yells and, the, and the, the, uh, the frustration turned into panic and everyone left. And I went and promptly locked the door and sat down and waited for Scott to come back and probably fire me. Um, why do I tell you that story? Well, have you ever been given a task that felt impossible? Have you ever been asked to do something or put in a position to do something that you felt was too much to do? For many of you, whether you've grown up in church and you've been around um, church backgrounds or church experiences, when we come to a passage like Matthew 28, it's a famous passage, this call to discipleship, this command that Jesus gives us to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and so on and so forth, we can feel that this is an impossibly weighty task. You might not run out of church or yell fire whenever someone's preaching on this, at least I hope you don't today, but the same feelings of, of, of feeling overwhelmed might conjure up in you when you see that this passage is read. You may think to yourself, this is too much. I can't, do, I can't go to the nations. I can barely go to my, my job. And when we consider the weight of this passage and all of its implications, it can feel overwhelming. Maybe no one says it out loud, but maybe you feel like you are useless unless you're willing to sell everything you own, move to a third world country and live as a full-time missionary. Or if you can't do that, you better at least have a bunch of money to throw at the people who can. Is this all that discipleship really is? Absolutely, God calls some of us to this, and we applaud the people who have given their lives over to this effort because that is a radically unique call to discipleship. But God doesn't call all of us to that. And if he doesn't call all of us to that, then what does discipleship look like for you and I? Do we have a category for ordinary faithfulness to Jesus? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is really only effective if we do extraordinary things for him? Or do we believe in a God whose power is present in the unseen moments of our obedience, who can take our everyday ordinary worship and transform it into something that is in fact attractive to a broken world? I wanna argue today that Ordinary moments just like these are moments where real discipleship 
and real transformation can happen. I believe that discipleship is radical, but I also believe that it's radically ordinary. I wanna share a quote with you this morning from Eugene Peterson. Um, In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he says this, there is a great market for religious experience in our world, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness and discipleship. I think many of us are willing to sign up for the sprint, right? We're willing to sign up for the short-term mission trip or we're willing to sign up for the program or the activity, but few of us are willing to sign up for the marathon of obedience and discipleship. And so this is what we're gonna be talking about today. But before we jump into the text, we have to look back at the story of God because the reality is this idea of radically ordinary discipleship is in fact not new. This has been God's plan since the beginning of creation, since the creation mandate with Adam and Eve, when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply these image bearers around the world and to cultivate the land that he had given them. When God called Noah and when God called Abraham, as we read in Genesis 12, to lead a new humanity that would be set apart by everyday faithfulness to God. When God gave the command to Israel to be a light to the nations surrounding them in the way that they lived and in what they prioritized. When God called the prophets to be obedient, to show a world that had forgotten who God was, even in the face of opposition, what it meant to be faithful. And then when we get to the the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the 400 years of silence, when God didn't speak directly to his people and they had to just wait and hope and trust. God has always commanded his people to be a people on a mission, but This mission was designed to take place in the everyday context of life, in their dishes, in their laundry, in their grocery shopping, in talking to their neighbors. God's design is that we would reflect his image in our daily lives and that that image would then draw the unbelieving and broken world to him. Michael Goheen wrote a book called A Light to the Nations talking about this very topic. And what he says is the church's function in God's story is to participate in God's mission. We are to be caught up in God's own work of the restoration and healing of all things. You notice it says we are to participate in God's mission, not create our own. So what does this look like on a practical level for us? When we peel back the onion, so to speak, and we look at the heart of this radically ordinary discipleship, what does this look like? Well, we have to start with what it means to be a disciple before we can even talk about what it means to make disciples. So this morning, our key theme um, is this. As disciples, in our faithfulness and in our suffering, we mirror to the world what matters. In our faithfulness and in our suffering, we mirror what matters. We are meant to be image bearers of God. And so in these two things, we are imaging 
what matters most to us. So the first point this morning, in our faithfulness, if we look at verses 16 through 19, I want you to notice that, that when Jesus tells the disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, this is an imperative call that Jesus is making. He is saying, you have a task to do. You have something to live out and to be faithful in. But I also want you to notice in verse 16, it said that some of them doubted. So that means that there was this trepidation, this uncertainty that was looming behind this call. For us, the fear of not being enough can be crippling. We see other Christians doing more than us, participating in more activities, excelling in their volunteerism, and we start to feel this enormous guilt that's associated with not being able to keep up. Maybe you feel like you're junior varsity Christians because you can't sign up for all the things everyone else can. We don't have enough training, enough money, enough time, enough experience, enough travel experience. So what do we do? We relegate discipleship out to the full-time missionaries, to the church leaders, to the experts, to those who have all the time. But when we're talking about faithfulness, the first thing I wanna say is this. Discipleship is not reserved for the experts or for the superhero Christians. When Christ called the 12 disciples, he called a diverse group of men and women who had varying degrees of experience, but they all had to start at square one when it came to following him. He was satisfied to use them where they were. He called fishermen, he called a tax collector, he called zealots, he called nobodies to follow him. He calls men and women from all walks of life, wherever they are, and he levels the playing field. All he is expecting from us is not to be superheroes, but to be faithful, to be ourselves, and to follow him. He knew that the disciples were not gonna get it right away. He, he knows that you and I are not going to understand everything that he is asking us to do. But he also knows that he is the one who is faithful to form us into his image and he has called us to simply follow. So discipleship is not reserved for the experts. But, and this is important, I wanna really dig in here. Discipleship is not a measure of your worth in Christ. What Christ was calling the disciples to in Matthew 28, it was unique. It was different than what he is calling many of us to. And it's tempting for us to read this passage and to hear, go and make disciples of all nations and to think, okay, let's drum up some activity and let's go, as my Gen Z high schoolers say. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go and make. And so we put this pressure on ourselves to perform at some sort of historic, extraordinary, impressive level. But here's the reality I want you to hear. Doing God's work is not what gives you value to him. It doesn't matter how early you show up to church, how many things you are involved in or you volunteer for, which meetings you attend, how much you do for others, how many mission trips you've been on, God is not more satisfied with some future, more accomplished version of you than he is with you right now. And if we're honest, when we do the things that we do in the name of Jesus, 
Are we trying to be witnesses of God or are we groping for validation? As followers of Christ, I want you to hear this good news. Your value is not in what you do for him because what Christ has done for you is infinitely and always more valuable than what you will ever do for him. Our most valuable asset as disciples of Jesus is our identity as sons and daughters before anything else. And if we don't understand that, we will develop a resume that is impressive, but we will be doing it for validation, for honor, for a pat on the back. And so our discipleship is not a measure of our worth in Christ. And furthermore, as we are faithful in these unseen moments, when no one is paying attention, it starts to become more visible and it starts to become more potent in the eyes of others. Um, anyone in here garden or pretend to garden, right? <laughs> Try to garden, that's, that's me. Um, so last year, I decided that I was gonna jump on the, the super crunchy hippie train and start doing compost, right? And so what I did was I had a little bowl and I started collecting eggshells and banana peels and coffee filters and all this kind of stuff. And I had this thing outdoors that I threw it into and I thought, okay, I'm gonna try this compost thing. And, and I'll admit, at the beginning of this, I, I was very skeptical. I'm thinking to myself, this just looks like a bunch of trash, right? It smells bad, it's attracting flies, it looks gross, my neighbors think I'm prepping for the end of the world. Like, I, this is not gonna go well. And I, I was skeptical, but I kept doing it. I kept throwing things in, I kept taking things out to the, the compost bin, and eventually, after you know a year or so, that compost started, as you know, if you do this, it started to break down. And it started to become this rich, beautiful soil out of which fruit and vegetables would grow. This is what it looks like to be faithful. In our parenting, in our careers, in our school, in the classroom, around the staff table, doing chores, when we're alone and when no one is watching, how we witness to Jesus and how we are faithful to Jesus in these moments speaks volumes louder than any kind of impressive resume of activity. The truth is, these things feel normal. They feel ordinary. They don't feel impressive. They don't feel applaudable. But in these moments, our participation with Christ is real in a way that is unique, and in a way that is tangible. Discipleship starts with acknowledging that every moment of life, the ordinary and the extraordinary, they're saturated with Jesus's presence. We can't just slap a Jesus label on things and make ourselves feel better about what we're doing. Who we are in the unseen moments of faithfulness becomes the visible witness of Jesus to those who are paying attention. There's an incredible book that I would recommend to you if you can get it. It's, it's called uh, Theology of the Ordinary by Julie Canlis. It's about 90 to 100 pages. And in it, she says this, the son's mission is not only the cross, but involves all of human life. The son inhabited all parts of human existence to transform them and become the one from whom our ordinary lives can now be lived. This 
is an extraordinary benediction upon our ordinary lives. It's in these moments, in these moments of, of acknowledging that, that we, we don't have to impress Jesus, it's not a measure of our worth, that, that we don't have to be something that we are not, that we can be faithful in these unseen moments. These are the moments of faithfulness where we truly mirror to the world who Jesus is. And so it's in our faithfulness as disciples that we mirror what matters. But secondly, it's in our suffering. The second aspect of being a disciple is significantly more surprising than the first. It's in how we handle suffering. Now, when we read the scripture this morning, it doesn't say anything blatant about suffering, but I want you to look at verse 20 because there is a reason Jesus gives them this truth, this encouragement. It says, he's teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our world is driven by comfort. We're driven by the avoidance of suffering. I like to say we have an allergy to suffering. The way Christians respond to suffering says more, than, more about our witness than we realize. The first thing I wanna say this morning is this, our suffering unifies us with Jesus. As followers of Jesus, as we've talked about, we participate with him. We join him in those ordinary everyday moments of life. But even more than that, we join him in his suffering. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. A strong language for what it means to be unified with Christ. I remember um, when I was in seminary, we were sitting in our seminary orientation, and I'll never forget whoever was given the orientation speech to all of these ambitious, young, excited students. He said, the invitation at Redeemer Seminary is simple. You are invited to come and die. And I think back on that moment because when I heard that, I thought, what did I just get into? But this is actually exactly what Christ invites all of us into as disciples. You see, Jesus gave his disciples this encouragement that he would be with them because he knew that he was sending his apostles into a world that was opposed to them. He knew that following this great commission meant that they would be even more acquainted with their deep need for him than ever before. He knew that they had death and had suffering to look forward to, yet the call remained the same. He said, go into the world, make disciples, baptize them into my name. Let my name be the only thing you bring to the table because he knew that he would be with them. Suffering is one of those things, as we've all experienced, that forms us into disciples that are deeply aware of our need and dependence on him. We are hopeless without our master. And our sufferings bring that truth, that reality, right before our eyes. It reminds us that when we do things that we think are impressive, that it is his power that is at work in us, not our own. And so suffering unifies us with Jesus. But suffering also reveals our priorities. Some of you I've shared my, my story with, but others I haven't. And 
when I was in vocational ministry full-time, I was, I was just eaten up with it. As my dad would say, I was ate up, right? Like I, I was so consumed with ambition, with being successful, with using good things to make a name for myself. And, and you know, I was effective, right? I was ticking boxes. I was, quote, unquote, making disciples. But what was really happening was that I was mirroring to the world around me that success was my greatest priority. And there was a moment when God in his kindness brought me to stare this reality face to face. I'll never forget, Morgan and I were sitting in our car outside of our house when we lived in Denton before we were going inside. And, you know, the spirit had really spoken to her that we needed to step away from full-time ministry with no agenda, no like step away for a couple weeks and come back, but just step away. And she told me that. And it was like, as soon as I heard those words, my flesh flared up, you know? I, I was thinking about all the things that I would lose. I was thinking about what would happen. I mean, I had spent my entire adult life trying to build this resume of being this awesome, young, ambitious kid in ministry, right? And in that moment, I was watching everything slip through my fingers, and I was not prepared for the season of wilderness and suffering that the Lord was getting ready to call us into. And you know what I said when she told me that? I said, you don't know what this will cost me. Those were the words that came out of my mouth. You don't know what this will cost me. That was a sobering moment because those words were like a curse. I said those words and I realized immediately that my priority was me. For you and I, what are your priorities mirroring to the world around you? Is it your comfort, your success, your uniqueness, your control, your money, your family? You see, suffering is a leveler of mankind. God uses it to reveal our priorities, what really matters most to us. And the hard pill to swallow is this. If we want to be faithful disciples, the thing that we elevate in our priorities will be the very thing that God is diligent to remove. And it's hard, but I promise you, when we allow God to reveal our priorities and remove those priorities that are not him, that will speak volumes to a world that is also fighting for wrong priorities. So our suffering reveals our priorities. And then finally, our suffering deepens our worship. As human beings, I mean, you may have heard this many times, but we are never not worshiping something. We are all fundamentally religious creatures. This means that we crave to give something ultimate attention, ultimate honor in our hearts. And if it isn't Jesus, it will be something else. Oftentimes, it can be really good things. You know, in the church, when we, when we talk about discipleship and we talk about making disciples of all nations, we, we might use programs or tactics to rally people. We might try to inspire growth with winsome speeches or sermons. We might gather people around a common vision and get people really excited about what we're going to do to change the world. But I'll never forget um, several years ago, I was listening to 
a Chinese missionary, and he said, it's amazing what the American church can do without the Holy Spirit. And that still guts me to this day because a lot of times these trophies of achievement that we do in the name of Jesus are really just testimonies of what we really worship. How often are we mirroring to a striving and tired world that what we worship is actually success? You see, the world, the world is already feeling malnourished. The world is already drinking salt water and coming back for more, thinking it's going to do something different. But as worshipers of Jesus, the thing that should matter most to us is communion with him. Rest in him. Satisfaction in him. He is our bread and he is our drink. The world doesn't need another Jesus-stamped version of the marketplace. It needs the bread of life. And so as suffering deepens our worship, it also deepens our satisfaction in him. Suffering gives us new taste buds that are fully and deeply and truly satisfied with Christ. What suffering does for you and for I both is that it, it forces us to ask this question. Will I be satisfied with Jesus or will I keep chasing after things that are disappointing? And when, I promise you, when a hungry world sees a satisfied people, they will flock to you. They, and, and ultimately, they will be flocking to Christ. When a hungry world sees that we are satisfied in Christ and that we don't need our successes or our achievements or our accolades to satisfy us, they're gonna go, that is different. And they're gonna start asking questions. And so as we talk about these two realities in our faithfulness and in our suffering, we mirror to the world what matters. There is some really good news. I know as we hear this, it can, it can feel convicting, it can feel overwhelming, but here is the good news. It's actually not up to you and it's not up to me. I can't tell you how many times I have heard this, this verse, this passage preached on, or read about books that talk about it, or watch sermons, or, or whatever, and the conclusion I draw is, okay, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and now he looks at us and he says, I did my part, you better do yours. But as we know in the story, when we reflect back to the beginning of God's story like we did earlier, God's representatives that he called to be a light to the nations consistently messed it up. They failed. We fail. We choose to image our own selfish pursuits. And what it leads to is it leads to separation from God. It leads to exhaustion, anxiety, workaholism, selfishness, indulgence, pride, you name it. But this is exactly why we need Jesus. You see, God gave mankind a task to be his image, to image him to the world around them but instead we imaged ourselves. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's the good news. Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the true Israel, the true prophet. Jesus is the one who trusts God in the wilderness when we beg to go back to Egypt. He gave us the truest example of what it looks like to perfectly 
reflect the image of the invisible God to the world around us. And so what this means is it's not up to us. Our task is not to reinvent the wheel with tactics and metrics and programs and Christian guilt. Our task is to actually attune ourselves to what Jesus has already done in redemptive history and what he is continuing to do today. This is God's mission. And what I want to do this morning is is reread the the psalm reading. I'm going to read kind of a different translation so it won't match what was on the screen, but this psalm reading actually speaks to what it means to be a disciple. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Guys, we can't read a passage like this and conclude that discipleship is up to us. Yes, it takes activity, it takes effort. We are participating with God, but it's not up to our efforts. This is God's mission and he is zealous for his kingdom. He is more zealous than you are and he is more zealous than I am. And so our task is to partner with what he is already doing. Discipleship begins and ends with Christ. So I wanna close this morning with a story. Um, I've shared before, many of you know, some may not. I'm, I'm a principal at a, a Christian high school in Denton. And I want to tell you about a student of mine named Pacer. Um, now, Pacer's a freshman, and the freshman class this year has been giving me a run for my money. I mean, they, they don't follow rules. They don't want to do what we say. They, they are, have been really challenging me in a lot of ways. And Pacer was part of that group. Still is in some ways. Um, but... What's amazing about Pacer is that about a week ago, he came to me and he said, Mr. Grice, I really need to talk to you. And it seemed urgent. And I'm like, Pacer doesn't ever want to talk to me about anything. What's going on? So we sat in my office and we talked and Pacer began to tell me about his stepbrother named Jazz. And Pacer was, was really excited to tell me about his stepbrother. And he said, um, Jazz is, is from Canada and he's kind of working on moving here. Um, Pacer is 14, by the way. Jazz is 20. And he says that, you know, he's not a Christian. He actually doesn't even believe Jesus is real. He thinks all that's just kind of a fairy tale. Um, But I want to tell you about something that happened recently. And I said, okay. And he said, Jazz started having like really, really bad anxiety. Like to the extent that he couldn't sleep, that he was having really bad headaches, that he just was, he was feeling this like overwhelming dread that something bad was going to happen all the time. And he said that, you know, Jazz was telling me this story about how it was getting so bad that he hadn't slept in like four days. And so what he did was he decided he's just gonna pray to fairy tale Jesus because he doesn't know what else to do. And so he started praying and he said that the anxiety started to go away. And, you know, Pacer said, I know it doesn't always work that way, but it was really weird. He was telling me about this and he started asking me questions about Jesus. And Pacer's like, I felt kind of out of my league. I didn't really know what to say. I just tried my best to tell him some things that I knew, 
to tell him some things that we had been talking about in your Bible class and answering some questions. And then there were some things that I said, I don't really know how to answer that. But he just started talking about Jesus with his older stepbrother. And then, you know, Pacer's telling me all this and I'm getting excited. I'm, you know, I'm like, that's awesome, you know. And Pacer says, so Mr. Grice, can Jazz and I meet with you and talk about Jesus? And of course, I'm like, uh, yeah, like, let's do this, you know? So I said, absolutely. And so we meet and, you know, we start talking about Jesus and Jazz is asking me questions and I'm giving him answers and Pacer's also giving answers. And I'm like so proud because I'm like, oh, I said that in class and you remembered, right? <laughs> um, and so it's, it's like this really cool moment and we're, we're talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel with, with Jazz. And, you know, it started this relationship where we're gonna continue meeting regularly to talk about the gospel. And the reason I share this story with you is because God is not expecting Pacer to go to India to make disciples. That's a good thing, right? But like what Pacer was doing by being faithful and what happened in Jazz's life by going through suffering, that was an opportunity to be a disciple who's making disciples. And I love, I mean, we heard children read this passage today. God doesn't need us to be impressive, to be obedient to this call. Pacer's a 14-year-old who's learning the gospel for the first time, who's talking to somebody who is for the first time believing that Jesus is real. All God is asking for is faithful, ordinary, humble obedience. It's incredible what God can do when we stop trying to take the reins out of his hands when we stop creating this criteria for discipleship that feels impossible, when we stop using our trophies and our achievements to make a name for ourselves instead of making disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, when we are satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone, a hungry world will start asking questions. Isn't it beautiful and liberating and inspiring and satisfying to be a disciple of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.